All right, well, let's get into our, uh, our next uh, sermon in the Daniel series. Uh, of course, we are in right now in Daniel, and, and uh, we are looking at the, the prophecies, um, the prophetic section, which is chapters uh, starting in chapter 7 to chapter 12, the last six chapters of the book of Daniel. And uh, these are some pretty interesting prophecies. At first read through, oftentimes they, they look scary because you have weird uh, things being talked about, right? Like last week we had these four beasts coming out of the ocean and, and things like that. And sometimes those, uh, because of the way the prophecy comes across, sometimes we're afraid to actually look into them. But they, they're not scary. Uh, they talk about some really amazing things. And today uh, we get to talk about unicorns and empires, and uh, which is pretty fantastic if you think about it. So, um, uh, so it, uh, it's not technically called unicorns and empires, but I think it's a much better way of saying that that, uh, that passage. But first, we want to get our Bible memory verse, and it's Isaiah forty six nine, and uh, this talks about God being able to foretell the future, and this is what God reveals to the prophet Isaiah. And he says, "I am God; there is no other. I am God; there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come." How cool is that? That's uh, one of the evidences that our God is, is true and is real, is he can actually tell the future. Now, you want to memorize that because it reminds us of one of the things that God tells us to look for as we validate who he is, right? It's the prophecy. And God says for us that there's something unique about him and that there's no one else like him. And one of the things that proves that is he's able to tell us the future, from way back in the past. And we will say that um, no one can really do that like God. And so this passage reminds us that God holds the past, the present, and the future. Right? It talks about his sovereignty, his plan. And there are maybe times in your life where you're feeling like the world is in chaos or your life is in chaos and you're wondering, does God know what's happening? And this is a wonderful passage to remind you he's already foreseen it and he's already dealt with it. There's no one else like him. And he already knows what's happening. He's already proved it. And today we get to see some of that proof. So I encourage you to take that memory verse and to put it onto your heart this week. Now, if you have your, um, your Bible, I don't know how I'm going to do this with two hands. You want to take um, your Bible out. Turn to Daniel chapter 8. Okay, and that is going to be on page 620 if you have one of our Bibles. If uh, you forgot your Bible, don't have one. We've got plenty in the back. If you need a Bible, please uh, keep it our gift to you. Now, Daniel 8, this is up, uh, it's uh, right there, the little 8 there is on the bottom of that page 620. Um, it's commonly called the vision of the ram and the goat. Now, doesn't empires and unicorns, unicorns and empires sound better? <laughs> right. <laughs> but if you read about it and other things like that, you're going to be called it the, the ram and the goat. Now, um, in Daniel 7, we see that Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 both related to visions that dealt with empires, right? The world history. And there were four major empires that, that God predicts are going to happen before the coming of the Messiah, right? So we begin with the Babylonian Empire, and then there's the Persians, right? And then there's the Greeks, and then there are the Romans. And then last week in chapter uh, 7... Uh, we really kind of had this, uh, he, he focuses on those four and then really kind of um, goes in on that last empire, right? The Roman Empire. Well, this particular vision focuses on the middle two, the, the Persians and the Greeks. And so that's where we'll, 
will be out today. Now, um, we start here with uh, verse 1, and it says, In the third year of the king Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. All right, so that tells, gives a time stamp to let us know when this vision takes place, which is important. And so um, that vision uh, took place in the, uh, in the year 552. So, it, and this is important. You want to write that down, 552, on your notes, because this is, uh, it's amazing when God, uh, he, he, what he predicts from this point. In 552, the Babylonian Empire was still the predominant empire in the world. In fact, it looked at that time to be unstoppable that no one was going to be able to topple the Babylonian. In 552, it was, it was dominant. It would be like the United States. We couldn't possibly think about you know, Costa Rica coming and taking over the world right, right now. Right? We would think we are, we are very secure. 552. This was two years after Daniel had the vision in, in chapter 7. So two years passed between that vision of the four beasts that came out of the, the sea and this one. And uh, so... Daniel was prepared. He knew that there was going to be a change of regime and all of this. And then two years later, God gives him a vision. The next thing that we read in here is that God tells him, uh, he says in the vision that he was uh, taken in the vision to Susa. And that was that little flashing thing there. And why does that matter? You see there it says, uh, in that vision, I, um, I saw myself in the citadel in Susa. Now, he wasn't taken there personally, but God in the vision actually transports him to a different city. Now, Daniel was in Babylon, and you can see Babylon is, is kind of in the middle there. We're kind of where um, uh, we have Baghdad and Iraq, and uh, Susa is over kind of where um, Iran is. Now, Susa wasn't a big deal city in Babylon. It was, they had the winter um, ca- um, palace and stuff that was there, but Susa was an important place for Persia. And the first thing that God does is he moves Daniel in the spirit, and says the vision that he has, he's standing in a place that's going to eventually be a place that's important in Persia. Now, Daniel wouldn't have understood this. He's like, why am I now having this vision over there? It'd be like if God gave you a vision, and all of a sudden, you're standing in, in, in Denver. You're like, I was an Estes, and now in my vision, I'm standing in Denver. But the place that God puts him is important. You know that, that the palace at Susa was the place that Nehemiah was when he served as a cupbearer to Artaxerxes the Persian king, right? That was a pretty big deal in, in, the, in the Jewish timeline, wasn't it? And the prophet was there. You know that this palace at Persia that Daniel foresees himself be was the very same place that Queen Esther was crowned queen of Persia. It was there. Susa was a very important place for the Persians. Though the Babylonians, it wasn't such a big deal. Now, Daniel would have no idea why God did that. But God was showing, he was taking him out of Babylon and saying, this vision has nothing to do with Babylon. This has to do with after Babylon, with something that, that hasn't even happened yet. And so he takes him to the seat of power for the next empire to come. Now, the next thing that we have here is we see that there is a two-horned ram. And so verses 3 and 4 have this. It says, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long, and one of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. And then he says, I watched in that ram charge to the west and to the north and to the south, and no animal could stand against it. No one could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased because it was great. So a couple things about it. It has uh, two horns. 
Okay, so it's important that one's bigger than the other. It uh, says that the, the ram pushes in three directions, west, north, and south, which I think is, is interesting in there and that passage. Okay, so then we have the, uh, the vision continues. Um, and we have the one-horned male goat, the unicorn. That's what I think because it's a, it's a, doesn't that sound much better? The unicorn goat. And uh, it says, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. And it came toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing at the side of the canal and charged it with great rage. So we see this, this unicorn goat flying across the ground towards the two-horned ram. And so, uh, an interesting uh, vision there. And then we see that there is an attack. There is a battle that takes place, starting in verse 6. And it says, It came towards a two-horned ram I saw uh, standing at the canal and charged with great rage. And I saw the attack of the ram furiously striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it. And none could rescue the ram from its power. And then it says the goat became very great. So we see this, this amazing attack, and it comes from the west. Did you see that in your notes? That the, that the goat was going to come from the west, the same direction that this, this ram was, was expanding into, north, south, and west. And from that same direction in the west, we see that this goat, this unicorn goat, comes flying in from and basically destroys the, uh, the ram. And no one's big enough to get it. Then we get to the really weird stuff. And it says, uh, then when the goat became very great, okay, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. So it's basically the four directions. So in somehow in the battle, after it destroys the ram, but very soon after that, and in, in fact even part of it, that awesome horn gets broken off and four little horns pop up. And those four horns are basically tied to the four points on the compass. And then there's a little horn, a big little horn. And anytime you read about little horns in the book of Daniel or prophecy, little horns are always bad news. Okay, So uh, verse 8, we have this. Then, um, or sorry, uh, <laughs> the, verse 9. And then one of them, uh, another came another horn, which started to grow. But it grew in power uh, to the south and to the east towards the beautiful land. So this little horn is going to, to grow. All right, and it's going to grow into a direction. It doesn't say from which of the horns it grows from, but it says it grows into a direction. And towards the east, towards the beautiful land. That's towards um, Israel. Right? How cool is that? So this little horn, that's where it's going to have its power. It's going to grow towards that. And then that little horn continues to grow. And uh, we see that it gets uh, even worse. It says in verse 10, It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. And it itself set itself up to be great as the commander of the army of the Lord. And it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sacrifice was thrown down 
because of the rebellion of the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it and it prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. So this little horn uh, gets out of hand, right? It grows so big that it actually starts to throw down heavenly powers. It gets so big that it's actually able to stop the sacrifice. It gets so big that it's, that it's going to uh, cause all kinds of, of trouble for the Lord's people, even in the sanctuary. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Was there a sanctuary when Daniel wrote this if in the 6th in the, the century? No. The sanctuary had been destroyed. Daniel was still in captivity in Babylon. The temple hadn't been built yet. So think what God just threw at Daniel. Oh, the temple's going to be there and there will be sacrifices again. Oh, and then they're going to be stopped because of this little horn. That's a lot. And so we have this and, and it says the truth be thrown to the ground. So this little horn's going to do some, some amazing things. It's going to cast down heavenly powers and all this. It's going to stop the sacrifices and all that. But it's going to prosper even though it does all these wicked things, right? Think about that. And then... Uh, after we, we have that, we see that Daniel has, hears a heavenly conversation, um, and starting at verse 13, and then it says, I heard the holy ones speaking, and the other holy ones said to them, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision uh, concerning the daily sacrifices, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. That evil is going to have its day. Now think about for Daniel, he's hearing like, uh, he was so upset because his people, uh, they, uh, they got cast out of, of Babylon, he was, or from Jerusalem. He was there when he got taken captive because the people were wicked. And then he finds out that they're going to be able to rebuild the temple, and the people are going to be wicked again. So wicked that God's going to send this little horn, and this little horn's going to be able to go in there, and he's going to be able to stop the sacrifices again. But God has, says evil has its day. Right? Evil comes and has its day, but it doesn't have forever. In fact, it doesn't have one day. In fact, it says it has 2,300 days. Because it says that there's this, this conversation, and the, even the angels are saying, how long does it have to last? And one of the angels, after the question, says to him, Daniel, it says, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, that's a day, when the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. So evil's on the clock. God will give evil its time, but it's limited. He tells them exactly how long it would be. And so now that we've seen the vision, which is kind of weird, we get to, the, uh, to consider the explanation. And to give us the explanation, God sends his very best. Right? And so verse 15 says, I, uh, While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, because Daniel's like, like you are right now looking at like, what on earth? Okay, it says, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice calling from the Ulai, calling, that's from the river, um, calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. You know who Gabriel is? He's not like, he's no small player. Uh, Gabriel's an archangel of the God, right? Uh, Gabriel shows up a couple of times in scripture and every time it's like big deal news. Like, let's take a uh, verse, the next uh, chapter, Gabriel shows up again. But in the New Testament, you know, it was Gabriel's the one who showed up, told Zechariah that he was going to have uh, John the Baptist. It was Gabriel that met with Mary. This was Gabriel. Like, this guy is important. When God has a message, he went and has to guarantee it gets through, he sends Gabriel. And Gabriel's got a lot of power. So uh, Gabriel's the one that's sent to make sure that Daniel gets this, which tells you how important it is 
right, when God sends this guy. All right. And so he sends Gabriel to help um, Daniel understand the interpretation. And uh, then we get the interpretation starting verse uh, 17. And uh, Daniel is terrified, okay, as you would be, right? He is in Babylon. He's seeing a vision over in Susa, and he sees all these crazy things. And then all of a sudden, uh, Gabriel's there telling him what's up, and he faints, which says there, he was terrified and fell prostrate, prostrate right? He fell, so other scriptures say he fell into a deep sleep, right? Which means you fainted, right? And so Daniel says, son of man, he said, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. And so we have this passage that God tells us, this is what this is concerning. And it's important for us to understand what is the time of the end? Is it the end of time? And which is a lot of times people think about, I think when we we read these things, but you understand when we um, interpret scripture, we don't look at it um, as though God spoke just to us today, right? The, how we interpret Scripture correctly is the first thing we say, what was the author's intended meaning? What was their perspective, right? Who was God speaking to? It helps us give us perspective. And Daniel lived in which covenant? The old covenant. And the reason we call it an old covenant is because there is a new covenant. And God was speaking to about at the very end of this old covenant and what was going to happen around those days. Now, Gabriel stands Daniel on his feet in uh, verse 18, and then he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And he also says, predicts that the time of the end would be a time of the times of wrath. Verse 19, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerning about the appointed times is about the end. So um, what are the, the end times there? And then Gabriel goes on to explain the vision. And he starts off with the ram, and get this, he names it. Think about the year that this prophecy came. This was before Persia was what we think of as the mighty Persian empire. The Persia was growing in power, but God didn't hint about it anymore. It wasn't like Nostradamus, right? There would be a lion somewhere, right? He says, there's a ram, and oh, by the way, that means Persia. And he spells it out to him right there. He says, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of the Media and Persia. Not only did he tell us it would be Persia, God tells us that it would be Media Persia, that they would be a united empire. And that's who this, um, <laughs> that this says. It's a one part of this empire is going to be stronger than the other. This was still forming at the time that the prophecy came. And God says, this is going to be what's going to happen. And he also says that this empire is going to push west and north and south. Why not east? Well, where was Babylon compared to Persia? West and north, right, and south. I think that's pretty, pretty crazy. So he says, this is what's going to happen. And then uh, we have this, uh, we see that the, uh, the map here, you see the red part on the outside? That's the Persian empire. Right? Once Persia became an empire, that's how big it was. See those little dotted lines on the outside that kind of runs around the inside there? You know what that is? That's the Median Empire. Which one was bigger? Persia. Isn't it cool how God predicted that that one horn would be bigger than the other before those horns even grew? That's awesome. Oh, and then the little tiny dotted line in the middle there? That, that's, that's Babylon. This new empire would be much, much bigger it would go to the north, and it would go to the west, and it would go to the south where the Egypt is. It would expand much larger than Babylon. God didn't only say that Persia would come. He would tell exactly how big it would be and where it would expand. 
That is cool. All right. Now, we have, then we have the, the next thing mm-hmm, that we have is the, uh, the unicorn goat. And that's Greece. And again, he names it. He says, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is his first king. Think about when this was written. Look at that number that was on your page in the 500s, right? Kingdom of Greece, empire of Greece didn't exist yet. No one thought Greece was ever going to be an empire at this point. There was about a bunch of tribes that were you know, trying to start democracy and stuff way back then, right? They, they, were, they were little tiny groups back then. They weren't a huge city-state. God says Greece now is going to be, to be bigger than Persia. No one would have believed it. But not only that, he said that it would start with a single emperor, a king. It's going to be super mighty. In fact, it would be the greatest, the greatest of all of the kings of Greece. And his name was Alexander, and he was great. I think that's pretty cool. Not only that, but he says the speed of this king uh, was going to be so fast. And when we saw the goat flying in, it would be like how the kingdom went. It would be going so fast. It was like it's barely touching the ground, just flying across the ground. That would be the nature of the expansion that Alexander the Great would bring to the Grecian Empire as it overcame Persia. And it would come from the West. And then it says that there was going to be four horns that would happen for But look, here we have here. This is how the, the expansion of Alexander the Great happened. So you have the two. Alexander came and knocked him down. But let me show you, actually, I'm going to show you a map of, of Alexander the Great's conquests. And, and Alexander the Great, con- his conquest was so amazing, so fast, even today, like all through our history, people are amazed at how quickly he conquered this massive Persian empire. Understand that Persia was, at that time, was the biggest, baddest. No one could conquer Persia. No one could. And, uh, uh-oh. And so it was unstoppable. And it said there in the thing that the, that the Persian Empire would be able to go and no one would be able to stop it. And at its height... All of a sudden, Alexander the Great doesn't just conquer Persia. He conquers it with such speed. It's amazing. And so, um, actually, I've disconnected. So if you take over right here and see how it starts. There was a first battle that was there in Granicus, and that opened up the door. The second battle was in Isias, which opened up the way to go into south. And the third one was at uh, Gagamalia, which is kind of near us, where that thing says Assyria, which opened up the eastern um, front of it. And Alexander just he flew through there, and, and basically it took uh, three years, three years to overthrow the mightiest empire in the history of humanity. Think about that. How quickly. Can you imagine a country like Mexico just coming through and just taking over the United States in three years, having basically three major battles and it's, it's done? Like the, the, the precision by which... God explains how this would happen is amazing. Uh, And so we see that then after the battle, right, there would be the the kingdom be broken up into four horns. Now you saw in there that the the, uh, Alexander the Great's conquest ended at Babylon because Alexander wanted to keep going east, but his people, his soldiers said, "Uh, we're tired, we don't want to cross that river, we want to go home, it's been three years, we're tired of winning. And so... He's like, all right, so they circle back around and they stop at Babylon. And at the age of 33 years old, the Alexander the Great is in Babylon and he gets a cold. And 10 days later, he dies. 
And the empire then is then divided up into four main sections by his four main generals. That's a pretty good prediction. And here are the four. We have Cassander, right, who is going to be um, there on the, uh, the far west side. Okay? He gets the uh, Macedonia and the Greek, it's like that. East of him is Lysimachus, right? So he gets that area of Asia Minor and all of this, right? The northern portion that we would see is the Seleucid Empire, okay? And then the southern part where we have Egypt is the, the, the Ptolemic Empire, the Ptolemy, right? And so he gets Egypt and all that. So the four points of the compass, a, a, the kingdom of Alexander, when Alexander is broken, when he's dead, would be divided into four kings, and those four kings would have the four points of the compass, basically. And this is what we see. How cool. Then, uh, if that wasn't enough, we see that out of one of those kingdoms, a big little horn is going to arise. Right? And it says that, that they would arise when the transgressions have reached their fullness. Right, In verse 25, it even talks that he will cause deceit and power and will consider himself superior and they will feel secure and he will destroy many and he will take uh, his stand against the prince of princes, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human hands. That's who the little horn is going to be. That's some signs of what he's going to be like. This little guy is going to grow up towards Israel. And he's going to trick people with deceit. And he's going to lull people into thinking that they're safe. And in the time that they think that they're safe, he's going to destroy them. And then he's going to die eventually after he's prosperous and everything. But no human is going to kill him. God's going to take him out. And that's a sign that we'll know how the, who the little king or the little horn was. And so he talks about this little horn as a king that um, shows up later after one of these four. It's one of the four. Uh, lines, one of the lineages of the four kings that shows up. So I know that. And that uh, he's going to cause all kinds of problems in Israel because Israel had fallen away again. And then it says that he's going to be powerful. He's going to destroy God's people. He uses all that kind of stuff, greed, deceit, and all that stuff. Now, who is the little horn? Uh, is Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. Um, he was a Greek emperor or a Greek king. And uh, uh, he... Uh, was part of the Seleucid Empire, and his name, actually his first, his real name wasn't that, he changed it, but he changed his name to uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. That's what that means, Antiochus Epiphanes. And you know what he did? How, well, how he ruled was he imposed Greek culture wherever he went. So he would go into a land, and as they were conquered, he would say, you're not going to be Greek, or you're not whatever culture you were before, you're going to be Greek now. And it was called Hellenization. They turned people into Greek culture. And part of that was Greek religion. Now, he ran into some problems because the Jewish people didn't so much want to worship the, the, the Greek gods. And so this guy, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he begins uh, in, uh, he starts his reign over that, the Sleet Empire in 175, and he dies in 163. But in 171, he begins the persecution of the Jews, because he was frustrated that they didn't want to become Greeks. But remember, the Jewish people, they didn't want to be Hellenized. They wanted to be Jewish, right? They had their temple finally. They had all this. They didn't want it to. So there was these two camps in Jewish thought. One of them was, hey, let's stay Jewish. Let's stay holy, right? The other part was the Hellenized uh, um, Jews. And they were like, no, let's, let's just go along and play along, and uh, we'll pick up Greek culture and Greek language and all that kind of stuff. And, and Antiochus gave those Hellenized um, Jews a lot of really good things. 
He gave him money and position and built a, uh, he had the, uh, the high priest in Jerusalem build a, uh, a big track there in the midst of, of uh, in Jerusalem. And he built um, big schools there to teach the Jewish people how to become more Greek and Greek thinking and all that kind of stuff. And he put all of this money into Jerusalem and he used deceit and money, greed, as a way of lulling the Jewish people to think, oh, well, we're going to be fine. And then he's like, uh, they're not becoming Greek enough. And so he goes into the temple and he puts a idol, the uh, a idol of Zeus, in the temple. And not only that, he has a statue of himself built in the temple. And the people were supposed to pray to Zeus and not God. In fact, he made it illegal to practice worship of Yahweh. And made it illegal to pray to Yahweh. In fact, he made it illegal to even worship Yahweh or to even own scriptures. And on the altar, he goes and he sacrifices a pig, which was an unclean animal. And then he directed that all sacrifices in the temple would be made at, at the, his, uh, the statue of him, his feet. So that all the, the sacrifices would be made to Antiochus Epiphanes, who basically lifted himself against God and said, I am bigger than you, which is what the prophecy said he would do. And so he ends up, uh, he brings this horrible persecution, and this persecution, um, it ends up uh, with a rebellion and was called the Maccabean Rebellion. And so we say that there was 2,300 days that the Scripture said that this persecution would last, right? That was what it said, that this guy would come into power and he would have 2,300 days for it to last. And I want you to see this. This is pretty amazing. So we have a timeline. 171 B.C., you have Antiochus uh, IV begins the Jewish persecution, in 168, it was a desecration temple when he built the statue of Zeus in there. In 165, it was in the Maccabean Rebellion, kicks the Greeks out and finally cleanses the temple and sacrifices begin again. And at 163, Antiochus Epiphanes dies. And how does he die? Well, there was this big rebellion in the Jewish part, right? And the Maccabees kick out the, the Greeks. But you know what? Antiochus, he still prospered. He got to go over into Persia, and he got a new whole area to reign and, and all this kind of stuff, and he was doing just fine, and then he got a cold. And without, the, without any humans killing him, he died. God took him out. Now, here's the part that is totally mind-bending, is it was exactly 2,300 days between when the persecution began and, and uh, Antiochus breathes his last. It's about six years, four months. Isn't that crazy? Evil has its day, and its day is uh, has, uh, 6,300 or 2,300 days. Boom. So 171, 165. Now, I think it was 63. I think this is really cool, as it shows that a lot of people stop the 2,300-day clock at 165 when the temple is cleaned, but God doesn't. And this is really cool because you would say, well, in 165, the temple can have sacrifices again and all that kind of stuff. We finally cleansed the temple. The persecution ended, right? But here's the cool part. There was a guy who had the audacity to accept worship in God's temple. And God said, it's not clean till he's gone. And God took him out, and then it was clean. How cool is that? God didn't let the one who was spat in his face walk away. 
God didn't say to the Israelites, so you have your, your temple back, that's enough. No, God himself was offended, and that, uncl- that, that unclean man needed to be wiped off the face of the earth. And then God said, it's over. God has a different picture of cleanliness than I think we do. How cool is that? But God predicted it a long time before it happened. So the prophecy has an impact. Verse 27 has an impact on, on, on Daniel. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Or, or 27. Um, I turned to the wrong passage. <laughs> Verse 27. Uh, it says, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up, went about the king's business. And I was appalled at the vision because it was way beyond my understanding. Now, the first thing we understand is that, um, actually, the passage before that, he says that this tells Daniel. Gabriel says to Daniel, hey, you need to roll this scroll up because it deals with things that happen in the future. Don't worry about it. Right? This, this particular prophecy, Daniel, isn't necessarily for you. Right? So Daniel takes the, the scroll and he's not like telling all the people, this stuff's going to happen now. Like, God says this is something that's going to happen in the future. But it still has an impact on, uh, on Daniel. Now, it did happen in the future. About 400 years after Daniel had this vision is when these things began to take place. But it had this, this horrible effect on him. First thing, he felt sick. And you think about why. Think about all that was thrown at Daniel. This prophet who was a prophet in the midst of Babylon, who had been, who had been carried off as a teenager into Babylon as, as, a, uh, as, a, as a refugee, as a political prisoner. And God, he saw God prosper him there, but his temple, his home city, Jerusalem, still lay in ruins. And this prophecy says that Jerusalem will come back again. And it's going to have a temple again. And God's people, there's going to be worship there again. Think how amazing that would be for a Jew who is in Babylon. That's good news. But the people are going to fall away again. And there's going to be a very bad guy grow up. And there's, there's going to be huge persecution for the Jews again in the future. So much so that even the temple itself, this new temple that hasn't even built yet, is going to be desecrated. And that God's going to allow this to happen. And that guy is going to prosper for a period of time. And this has to do with the time of the end. And then that guy would end. And then there would be the times of the end would start to begin. That's a lot to take in. No wonder he felt sick. He's like, I don't understand what this all means. I know the Greeks are going to come and all this kind of stuff. But what does it all mean? He was astonished by the vision. He he pondered it and made him worry. But then he's like, you know what? I just got to get up and got to go to work. And that's what he does. I think sometimes we read in these scriptures, sometimes we read about the prophecies of the end. Like this one talks about when Jesus came. We do have prophecies in scripture that talk about the end of time. And sometimes when we read those and they confound us and they talk about things that haven't happened yet and we look at what's going to happen and sometimes we're so filled with fear it makes us like, oh no, right? And we could become sick at our stomach and we just focus on it and we just become, you know, that becomes our only thing. And you know what? We just need to trust God. And like Daniel was like, you know what? If it happens, it happens, and it will happen. God is still in control. And we have to just get up, think about these things, ponder them, but we've got to continue doing our job, trusting that God is in control. Now, when we read this prophecy, some things that we see is that God is in charge of history, don't we? The, the Persians weren't as in control as they thought they were. The Babylonians weren't nearly as in control as they thought they were. They thought they had the grandest empire that ever and it was a tiny empire compared to that of the, the Persians. 
which was smaller than that of the Greeks, which was smaller than that of the Romans, which was infinitesimal compared to the size of the kingdom of God, which has grown and covered the entire face of the world. Our God is the God of history. He is the God of the past. He is the God of the present. He is God of the future. He is God and there is no other. There's God, there's no one like him. He makes known the end from the very beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. And so we can trust him. Even though we know that in the times of the end, sometimes there's a time of wrath. It has its day. Evil will last for a while, but it won't last forever. And God brings a complete cleansing. Now, what we find from this is that this prophecy was fulfilled. All of it. I think it's amazing. History confirms what is described in this prophecy. Look back and you notes when this was prophesied. Right? And then realize it was the, this was prophesied in, in, the, in, the five, uh, in the 6th century. And in the, in the 2nd century, we find fulfillment. That's amazing. That we see that there was a conflict between the Medio Persians and, and, and the Babylonians. The Babylonian, Babylon actually took over that land. We find that there was a division, uh, there was a conflict between the Greeks and the Persians. <laughs> And the Greeks came from the West, and they conquered just like there was. We, we see that there was a one, a unicorn, a horn that was very powerful and was able to destroy the power of the Medians and the Persians, Alexander the Great. And we see that at the end of that, that that horn was broken off and that the kingdom of the Greeks was divided into four major parts. We see that from one of those four major parts, right, there was the Seleucids, there was a little horn that grew up and it did all these things and... and, and not only was the temple made, remade, but it was also defiled. But it was also cleansed. History confirms these things. And because of that, it becomes a very strong reason for us to see Scripture as not as just something that people made up. This is from God. This is why we call it the Holy Bible. It's different than any other book. It's different than anything else. God who knows what's happening told us these things so we would know that these are from him. It's evidence that our faith isn't built upon hearsay. It is based upon a God who knows all things. And if he knows the past and the present and he knows the future, then can we trust him with our today? Can we trust that the God who knows, he controls empires, who can raise up empires and destroy them at will, who can give evil time but says when it's done, it's done. Can we trust him with the, our life now? In the chaos that we see in the world today, in the fear and all the stuff we see with all the political stuff that's going on and all of the, the craziness that happens around the world and all the brokenness and all of the pain and all of the difficulties that we see in the big scope of the world and also in the trials and the tribulations that we face in our own lives, the sickness and the frustrations and the heartache, can we trust that God, the God of, that has told the end from the beginning, is in control today? For me, I would say yes. I would trust that this God has a better plan for the world. He also has a better plan for my life. And I can trust his wisdom. But it also means that this God is very, very powerful. And he has a plan, and there's this wonderful mystery between his sovereignty and our free will. And we have a choice that we can either stand with him or stand in opposition to him. 
And the amazing choice that we get to have, and I think this is where our free will gets to come in, is that if we stand with God, we are on the side that wins. (laughs) Regardless of what today looks like, victory is coming. Victory is here. (laughs) And our God is already winning. So the challenge is to stand with God. Now, how do you apply that to your life? Well, there are some things that you can do. Take out your connection card. There's some things today, this week, that you can do to begin by applying. I know it's prophetic prophecies, and sometimes it's difficult to to say, how do I stand with God? What are some next things I can do? Well, God, Jesus said that that we're disciples, right? And discipleship is a process, right? Jesus made disciples, right? And he tells us to do the same thing, and he tells us how to do it. First thing we need to do is go to, go to people that don't know about him, and we're supposed to tell them and bring them to faith, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Help them come to faith. And then he tells us, he invites us, says, then teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That's a process. You think you obey everything Jesus commanded all at once? You even know everything he commanded. How are we supposed to do it? It's process. So there's next steps in faith that we each have to take, and these are what these commitments are, next steps. The first one is maybe memorize Isaiah 46.9. I think one of the first things to be able to follow Jesus as Lord is actually trust that he is Lord, isn't it? I mean, we have to really trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about. We have to trust that he really is more than we are, that he has the right to be able to tell us so we can obey his commands. And that's what this passage is all about. He is God and there is no other like him. He's God, there's no one like him. Jesus was able to be able to foretell the, the end from the beginning, from ancient times was yet to come. And the scriptures and the prophecies point to Jesus. That is why we follow him. That is why he's not just like Muhammad or like, like Confucius or like anybody else. He's unique. And that passage may be something that is helpful for you when you see the empirical evidence of of prophecy fulfilled, and it points to Jesus. This passage may be the thing that helps remind you why it is you follow Jesus. Maybe the next thing you do is read Daniel 8. These prophecies were to be sealed up till the times of the end. Well, guess what times we live in? We are in the times of the end. Jesus even said that. These are the end times. He was, he was saying that, right? His return, he could show up. You need to know what God has done. So maybe what you do is get into God's holy word and let it feed your soul. And if you're not in the habit of doing that or you want to be able to study, I gave you some, I, I demythalized this, this for you. It helped you see what the prophecy would read it. Or maybe there's a line there, pray for. Pray for somebody that you know. See, God is the God of history, but he's not the God of, not everybody's bending a knee yet. There's a day coming when God's going to reveal himself and even those in heaven and earth and under the earth and everybody, even the devil himself, will have to, to confess that he's God and, and ruler over all. But there's a time now, we live in a time of grace and mercy. And there are people that you know that aren't bending a knee to Christ because they don't know his power. Some stand out of, out of willful arrogance. They think they don't, they don't need God. And there are some that just stand in ignorance because they just don't know God. Regardless of the two, our God is a God who can change hearts, not just history. You have to believe that. And so maybe there's somebody in your life you need to be prayed for. A coworker, a family member, a neighbor, a friend. Write their name down and begin praying for them that the God of history, just as he revealed himself to Daniel and to us in Scripture, reveal himself to them. Pray for opportunity to share the gospel. Pray that God will give you a heart for them. Pray. Well, maybe the next thing you could do is, is take some next steps is join the growing deeper class. 
or going deeper class. I always say that wrong. The going deeper class. Maybe that's what you're going to do. You say, you know, I want to take this next step of discipleship. I know I need to obey Jesus and follow him in all things. I don't even know what that is. That's what this class is about. Getting together with other Christians, going into the word, asking the questions, asking the tough questions and the hard questions, and going into the word together and figuring out what does it mean to be a Christian and how to live it. Maybe that's what you do. The information when the class starts, all that's in your notes. But if you want right now and say, I'm going to come in, I want to be part of that, let us know. We'll get you on the list. So that way you get all the information as the class begins to form and all that kind of stuff. It helps, uh, helps the, the teachers to know, how, to, know what, how much materials to get and all that kind of stuff. But you say, you know, this is the next step I'm going to take. Take it. Or maybe there's a different commitment you need to make. Make that. Maybe you have a prayer request. This is a great time to write those down because the God of history is the God of our lives, and he does work. In fact, every week we get to hear praise reports about how he's answering prayer because our God is alive and he's active. And if you have something in your life that you would need help with or God's guidance in or whatever, I invite you to write that down now. And here in a minute, we're going to take our, our offering. As we take our offering, we're going to take these connection cards. We're going to put them in the offering basket along with our tithes and our gifts. And we'll take those next steps together as we grow in disciples that build disciples. Good stuff? All right. So let's pray. Pray for these and pray for our offerings now. Father God, we are grateful for you and for your kindness and goodness and power and mercy. God, we're grateful for the ways that you have revealed yourself in history and through history. God, you are amazing. Lord, I pray for us today that we wouldn't just say we're your disciples, but help us to take next steps as living as your disciples. We see that the kingdom of God, your kingdom, is already here and is advancing. In every corner of the globe, even under persecution... And even in time and places of protection, God, your kingdom grows. So I pray it would grow in us. Help us to become people that are more like you. Help us to become more loving and forgiving and kind and compassionate. Father, let us be a people of mercy as you are of God that has shown us great mercy. Let us be a people of hope because you are a God that holds the future and good things are coming. God, help us grow in you. But, Father, I also pray that you would grow in us. Lord, that the the evidence of the Holy Spirit, the love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control, all of these things, Father, I pray would grow in us and continue in greater measure. And, Father, I pray, too, God, that you would grow through us, that the kingdom of God would advance in Estes Park. I pray that the days of darkness and evil over Estes would be numbered. Lord, in it, your light, will fill this valley. And then everyone who lives here would have the opportunity to understand who Christ is so that they could make their own choice of whether or not they want to follow you. Lord, may you do this in us, in this church, we pray. Also, I pray, Father, for the gifts that we're giving back to you, our tithes out of obedience and our offerings out of, out of generous hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use them as an investment in your kingdom. May you grow love through them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.